The scripture passage from this morning is from the book of Ruth. It's the first chapter, two verses, three verses, 16 through 18. The story of Ruth uh, tells the story about a promise that Ruth makes to her mother-in-law, Naomi. So Ruth says, Do not press me to leave you or turn my back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do thus, and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. The story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. (laughs) So during the month of May, we have been considering practices that strengthen, that build up Christian community. So these practices, they distinguish us uh, as a Christian community from other groups that surround us in our community. And then they just, they build us up. They strengthen us as well. They draw us together. So we've talked about um, hospitality as one of those practices. We've talked about gratitude as another one of those practices. And last week we started talking about promise making and keeping as a third of those practices that strengthen Christian community. In Genesis chapter 9, at the end of the Noah story, God makes a covenant with all of creation. And then the whole of the Bible story tells us that when people forget God graciously extends another covenant. So we can actually give ourselves the nickname covenant people. That is just a part of our identity because we are repeated beneficiaries of God's great love. But wearing the name tag, wearing the name tag covenant people really isn't enough for us. To be a covenant person, we have to take on that practice of making covenants and keeping covenants over a course of our lifetime. The book of Ruth is about a promise that one woman makes to another woman and how God's greater promise is revealed in that commitment. In the book of Ruth, the daughter-in-law, Ruth, makes a covenant, makes a promise to her mother-in-law. And Ruth, what we know about Ruth from the beginning of the story is that she is a Moabite. And that's important to the early hearers of the story and important to us today. Ruth was a Moabite. And if you're thinking in your mind, well, that's a dirty word I haven't heard before, you are exactly right. To be a Moabite was a dirty word. The Moabites were an ethnic group that was despised and rejected by the Israelites. Genesis chapter 19 tells this shameful story of how the Moabites came to be. And then in Deuteronomy 23, we have these instructions. Don't despise an Egyptian because you resided as foreigners in their country. And then following that verse, it says this, But no Moabite or any descendant may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water when you came out of Egypt, but instead they sought to pronounce a curse on you. So Deuteronomy 23 says 
Don't despise an Egyptian, but the Moabites, the Moabites, those guys are bad. They are the lowest of the low. They are lower than the Egyptians. Now, if you look, which we're going to do this morning, at the whole of the Ruth story, I think faithful people begin to see that it's not a good practice for any of us to despise or reject another person or another group. Because when God is on the move, things shift. Things change. The judgment calls that we make on who should be despised or rejected don't hold true. The very first few lines of the book of Ruth tell us how a disaster all comes together. So what Ruth, how, how the story is set is that there is a famine in Judah. And so a man and his wife, and the wife's name is Naomi, they decide to take their two sons out of Judah. They happen to live in Bethlehem. So Bethlehem can literally be translated to be the house of bread. So it's their decision during a famine to take their family out of the house of bread to take them to Moab. That's where they go. A place of disaster, a place of death and destruction. So it's like they take their family out of the pan into the fire. There in Moab, the father dies, the head of the family dies, and his two sons, who are named, the story gives us their names, Chilean and Milan. Okay, well, here's what you need to know about Chilean and Milan. Chilean can be translated to perish or to die, and Milan sounds a lot like the disease that the Egyptians got before the exodus. So... Chilean and Milan, I mean, their days are numbered, right? If Just knowing their names, we know that they're not going to live very long, that they're not long for this world. They aren't. <laughs> Naomi is then left with these two daughters-in-law, and she decides to return from Moab to Judah. The girls leave out with her. They're going to go with her, but either out of generosity or grief, or possibly, I think, even embarrassment. Man, it would be embarrassing to take your Moabite daughters-in-law back with you home to Bethlehem, to Judah. So Naomi goes to great lengths to kind of shake them off. She tells them to go home to their families, go back to their people in Moab. But this is, this is where Ruth steps up. This is where Ruth promises her love and her loyalty to her mother-in-law. That love and loyalty it isn't required. It isn't expected. It's over and above what is normal. Ruth says to her mother-in-law, your God will be my God. And it's a lifelong commitment that she makes too. She says, where you die, I will die. And I'll be buried there. Well, last week we talked about her. I I suggested to you that there are three qualities for a covenant, three things that distinguish a covenant from any other agreement that we might find ourselves in. And all three of those qualities start with the letter R. So the first quality of a covenant, of a promise that we make as a faithful person, is that it's about relationship. So a covenant is always about a person or a group of people before it's about an idea or a thing or right thinking. 
It always favors relationship. The second thing about a covenant is that it's about risk. So that's a part of our story as faithful people that sacrifice is important. So in a covenant, we make, we take a risk or we make a sacrifice on behalf of another person or on behalf of a group of people. If there's no risk in the promise in the covenant that you make, it's probably not a covenant. It's probably a contract because a contract is an agreement that is configured with security in it. So if something goes wrong, then you just take that disagreement to a third party. You take that disagreement to a court of law and things are set right in a contract. But a covenant involves a risk. In a covenant, you take a risk on behalf of another person. And then the third part of a covenant is that it's about remembering. And what you're remembering in a covenant is you're remembering God's great love for you. First John chapter 4 says we love Because God first loved us. That's the story of scripture. And that's what we're doing when we make promises to people. And we keep those promises. We are remembering that we live out of. That our lives are fueled by God's great love for us. So covenants are difficult to make. Covenants require a lot from us. Including vulnerability. Because when a covenant is broken. Man we know it. It hurts. It's painful. It feels like betrayal, or it feels like a broken heart. And while covenants are difficult to make, I do also want to stay in the same breath. They are essential for us to make. They are a part of living out the faith. It's important to us to grow stronger in our faith, and the way that we do that is to take risks on behalf of other people, remembering God's great love for us. We have to do that in order to grow in the faith. So luckily, some covenants just show up in our lives. They just appear in our families. They come from the family ties that we have together. Um, we have covenantal relationships with, with our mothers, many of us, with parents, with our, not only with our mothers, but with our fathers, with our siblings, with our children. And so whether those covenants are spoken or unspoken in, in and among families, We show up for those people when life gets hard. That's what makes it a covenantal relationship. We put their interests ahead of our interests. And they are the people whose beds we stand by when they're dying. We hold their hands. Those are covenants. Some of them just show up in who we are and the families that we sit in. Other covenants that we enter into, we enter into them very intentionally. Like we know about them and we are nervous about them when we get into that covenant. So some of those covenants have like formal ceremonies around them, like a baptism or a wedding. On some level, when you're getting into a covenant, into that kind of covenant, where there's a formal ceremony, you know that what you're promising, you are well aware that what you're about to promise is more than you can handle on your own. (laughs) So you need the help of the community that surrounds you, and you also need the help and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit that you will rely on God as that covenant unfolds. Okay, still other covenants, and this is what I want to talk about today. Still other promises that we make as faithful people, we enter into decisively. We enter into steadily and purposefully. Um, When writing about promise-making and promise-keeping, theologian Christine Pohl 
points this out. She says, um, it is important that we remember that it's not sinful to be finite so that we all have limitations. We all have needs for rest and renewal, and we can't make every promise that we are tempted to make. But instead, we need to practice discernment when we're entering into covenants, when we're entering into making promises to a person or to a group so that we can recognize what God has for us. So we can recognize the covenant that is specifically for us, not just something that's being asked of us. Discernment is important. So the discernment that I want you to get from the story of Ruth, from the book of Ruth, is that we enter into covenants as faithful Christian people because it's a place in our lives or it's a relationship in our lives where we are hoping for redemption. It's a place where we want God to work. So you enter into a covenant with this prayer. God, work here. I am committed here. I am showing up here, and I want to witness your work here too. We sometimes very decisively enter into these covenants and friendships or in our families. We sometimes enter into these covenants where we're hoping for redemption in our workplaces. And I would tell you that this is what we do as members of the church. You know, we had a big group of people join at 930 through the confirmation class. And if the confirmation class were here in bulk this morning, I would want to tell them, joining a church does not mean that you're saying this. Church, what do you have for me? (laughs) Instead, joining a church means I am here. I am committed to this people. I am committed to this place. Lord, you are here. You are committed to these people. You are committed to this place, and I can't wait to see, Lord, what you are going to do. Suzanne Stabile um, is married to a Methodist pastor, but she's also come to some fame um, in the last few months because she's published a book called The Road Back to You with a man named Ian Crone. And the book talks about the Enneagram. And so one of the things that she says as she's teaching the Enneagram is that she says there is a mantra for life that all Christians need to follow. And here's the mantra. The mantra goes like this. Show up. Pay attention. Tell the truth. Relinquish control. Show up. Pay attention. Tell the truth relinquish control. Now what she says, the reason that she uses this when she's teaching the Enneagram, which is about different personality types, is she said, she says that parts of that four-part mantra are easy for every person in this room. I bet you can pick which one is the easiest for you. And then there's another part that's more difficult for you. It depends on your personality type, what she would call your Enneagram number, which part is the easiest and which part is the hardest. So lucky for you, I am really good at showing up. You're never going to have to preach a sermon when it's my Sunday. Because even if I have a fever, I've done it before, 
I will be up here preaching. I show up. But here's what I don't do so well. What I don't do so well is relinquish control. That's really tough for me. So um, as faithful people, it's important that we live into all four parts of that mantra um, and that we grow into each of those four areas. Covenant calls us to work through those four steps. Covenant calls us to really show up, and then it calls us to relinquish control, to walk through the steps so we can get to the fourth part of that mantra, relinquish control, and watch God work. Several years ago, I was um, on the periphery of a Christian group that was designed for children. It was designed for children um, so that they could grow in their faith. And, and in this particular group, there was trouble. It stemmed from the fact that this group covered a wide range of ages. And so what happened in this group was some of the older kids started to pick on some of the younger kids. And there were specific incidents in the group that were reported. And so then there was this decision that Keith and I had to make. And really all the parents who had children in the group. What do we do? What do we do about this? It was interesting to watch because um, so I had this introverted child. She wasn't really fully a part of this group, but she wasn't really fully a part of any group. She didn't care if we just let her stay at home. She kind of preferred that. Um, so I just got to, got to watch and see what other parents did. And some parents, some parents said, we're out of here. We are not sticking around. And they left. They left the group. Other parents went to the leaders who were employees of this particular organization. So other parents went to the leaders, the employees, and they said, you change. You're responsible. You make the changes. We demand it. But there was this one dad, (laughs) this one dad that I really learned from. He had two kids in the group, and he went to the leadership of the group, and he voiced his concerns But then he said this, he said, I will go on every trip this group goes on. I will serve as a chaperone every time this group leaves the city limits. I will be at every event this group does, and I'll participate. And he ended with this, and I will pray daily. I'll pray daily for this group, and I'll pray daily for you, the leaders. So it's been long enough, several years, that I can tell you what happened to the group. Our kids have long exited that group. But the group could not be stronger. The tasks that they do together go well, and the relationships that they're forming in that group are really strong. So I can't stand up here and tell you for certain that that was because of this one guy's commitment that that made all the difference. There could have been other factors. But I do want to stand up here and tell you that it very well could have happened because of the promise that that one guy made, because that's the story of the Book of Ruth. (laughs) I just got to watch. I just got to watch God work as he made a commitment and God transformed the group. The Book of Ruth is um, 85 verses long. So it's not a very long book in the Bible. You really can read it in one setting. Twenty-three times 
in those 85 verses, one word is repeated. And that word, or some version of that word, is the word redeem. Naomi, the mother-in-law, ends up being the ultimate recipient of redemption. At the beginning of the story, this picture far to my right depicts her. At the beginning of the story, when she is returning to Bethlehem, she gathers the women of the town and she says to them, you can just call me bitterness. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Because life has dealt bitterly with me. She says to them, I am empty. At the end of the story, when Ruth marries a very faithful and good man named Boaz, they have a son named Obed. At the end of the story, the women of Bethlehem, they gather together and they say to Naomi, we bless the Lord Because he has not left you without a next of kin. This baby will be for you a restorer of life. Now that phrase, restorer of life, it's a little awkward. In Hebrew, it's just two words, two Hebrew words together. And you find those two words together one other place in the Bible. It's in the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. The Lord restores the soul. The Lord restores life. That's the power of redemption. And often, God brings this redemption through us. God works through us. You and me. Regular human beings bringing restoration, restoring souls for one another. That's incarnation. We see it in the book of Ruth because Obed, who is the child that is born, becomes the grandfather of King David and is then in the line uh, for the Messiah is one of the ancestors of the Messiah, Jesus. And so in Ruth, we see not only that Naomi is saved, that her life is restored, but we see um, as followers of the Messiah that we are all restored. Through this promise, through this commitment that Ruth, a Moabite, a nobody, makes. When we make covenants, when we make these promises of the biblical kind, we entrust a person or we entrust a group to God's good care, and we dedicate ourselves to witnessing what God will do, to witnessing God work. So I want to, as the worship team comes back up here on the stage, I want to invite you to consider a commitment that you have made, that you want to remake today, or maybe spend time in prayer discerning whether there is a new covenant for you to make. I don't know, it's Mother's Day. Maybe that, that promise is just a renewal of a promise that you are going to make to your children, 
or that you're going to make to your own mother. Or maybe it's a covenant that, that you want to make to a ministry or to a friend who's, who is either sitting here in this room with you or maybe not in this room. As the worship team leads us in prayer, I'm just going to invite you to remain seated and consider what is it? Where is that opportunity that God has for you to watch God work?